As uh, Barrett mentioned, next week we launch a new series. It's the uh, 34th series that uh, we've done here at Hebron since I've been around. The beauty of a series is that you always know what you're going to preach. <clears throat> at least you know the text. Uh, next uh, week we start a series called The Rescue. And it's going to be a study of the book of Galatians. And actually it's going to be two series that cover this book. The Rescue, and then in the winter and spring, we're going to talk about freedom, the last three chapters of the book of Galatians. Galatians has been called a little bomb in the midst, of, like a boom in the midst of the New Testament. It is interesting. I'll mention some of the uh, historic uh, relevancies of that uh, as we move on today. But uh, in preparation for next week, I thought it might be helpful to look again at the greatest story uh, in the Bible. If Jesus, the story of Jesus, is the greatest story ever told, and it is, then what is the greatest story Jesus ever told? Well, it's a parable that has three parts, but it's the last part of that parable that has been called the greatest story. The story of the man with two sons. Often it's called the prodigal son story. And so let's take a look at uh, Luke 15 where we find it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. <clears throat> in 1958, in Jerusalem, a British scholar and churchman, Kenneth Craig, was giving a lecture on the debate that occurred in the Middle Ages between the Muslims and Christians. And he noted that the Muslims often used this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, to say that Christianity is a myth. They said if a son leaves his father and goes into a distant country and squanders all of his resources 
and then recognizes his plight and decides to return to his father to face the music. And when he gets there, his father welcomes him and celebrates him, then there's no need for a savior. No need for a cross. Ergo, Jesus is a good Muslim. I mean, if the guy's in the pig pen and he comes to his senses and he decides to go home and repent, then why need a Savior? Why a cross? Ergo, Jesus is a good Muslim. 500 years ago, next year, Martin Luther was reading the book of Galatians and the Reformation began. 200 years later, a group of men in New England were reading Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians and the Great Awakening occurred. I mean, think of this. 500 years ago, the Reformation. 300 years ago, the Great Awakening. What is it about the book of Galatians that can turn lives upside down? Well, it's something Muslims and many Christians really don't know. They think they know it, maybe, but they don't. And that's an equation. There is an equation in the book of Galatians. And the equation is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You see, according to the Apostle Paul, the common interpretation of the prodigal son story is wrong. If God's favor is based on what we do, what we say, what we feel, then the gospel's lost and the Muslims are right. So let's get the scene. Jesus is eating and drinking with prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, see it and they are aghast and they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. According to the Jewish law, no self-respecting rabbi would have anything to do with the people of the land. That is, tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen, sinners. But Jesus has another view. And Luke says he talks to the Pharisees and the scribes, knowing what they're thinking. And he tells them a parable that has three parts. The first part is about a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. The second part is about a woman who loses a coin. And the third one is the story of a man who had two sons, and the first son described is one who's lost. Now, in the first part of the parable, the shepherd goes in search of the lost sheep and finds it. The second part of the parable is the story of a woman with a lost coin. Now, we've talked about this before, but just so if you weren't here, you need to know that instead of a wedding ring, what women would wear around their neck was a, was a 
necklace that had ten knots in it, and between each knot was a coin. If that woman was unfaithful in her marriage, the leadership would take one of her coins, which would be a sign that she's broken her vow. So she loses a coin. You know, as a kid, I used to think, what's wrong with that woman? And then I lost a coin. <laughs> now remember, that, that floor is all thatched. I mean, looking for a lost coin is tough. And yet, Jesus says she searches the house diligently until she finds her coin. And then she goes out and she shares her good news with the neighbor. I wasn't unfaithful. See? Here's the missing coin. So the first part of the parable is a shepherd going in search of a lost sheep. The second part is a woman losing this very valuable commodity and she finds it. And then we have a lost son. Who's responsible for his finding? The answer to that question requires us to understand what Jesus is saying in the first century context. In the case of the first and second part of the parable, to rescue this story from its Western cultural presuppositions and return it to Jesus' original meaning in the first century. And I can tell you, I've known this story for nearly 50 years. And yet it's only been in the last 20 that I began to understand what it really meant to those who first heard it. Just like that lost coin. It's not pocket change. Losing a coin that's part of your necklace is major. So what's Jesus saying here in this story of the prodigal son? Well, he's telling us the gospel. All about the gospel. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the request. Look at verse 12. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now notice, there's no mention of the father's age. There's no mention of his health. In Jesus' day, for a son to say to his father, give me the share of an inheritance if his father is not yet dead was shameful. Really what the son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're dead to me. Now give me what is mine. Now today, if a child said that to his parent, his father, you might get slapped. (laughs) You know, you might get disciplined. You might go down, that father might go down to his attorney's office and rewrite it. But in the first century... If a son said that to a Middle Eastern patriarch, he would not only have been pummeled, he would have been excommunicated from his family. This is a capital offense. The power of the father was was all there was in the family unit. But notice what this father does. He doesn't slap him. He doesn't disown him. He grants his request. He liquidates his assets, or at least he 
doles them out, the older brother getting two-thirds share, the younger son getting one-third share, and Jesus says, as soon as he gets it, he gathered all that he had. Now, for years, I just thought that meant he took it and left, but he didn't do that. To gather all that he had meant that he liquidated the assets. There's a public sale. When you sold something in antiquity, it was a public act. It is in today's day, too. You see it in the paper. If you sell your house, it'll be in the paper. But in antiquity, it was more than a newspaper. The entire town was able to come to this public sale. So imagine, these townspeople come to see the sale of property of a father who's not yet dead. And they're saying, how can this be? He's not dead. How did this son get this stuff? And in Greek, it says, he sold it hastily. I mean, talk about a shameful act. Everybody would know that this son wished that his father was dead. But his father's willing to allow it. He allows himself and his family to be publicly shamed. Now, this isn't conjecture. I'm not making this up. This is the way it was in the first century. And Jesus says, not many days hence or later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. In other words, it's a hurried sale. Why hurry? Because it was shameful. The sale of a father's property was a public act. Really what that son is saying is, not only do I not care about my father or my brother, I don't care about this community. He doesn't care about his father. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't care about the community. He wants his money and he wants to leave as quickly as possible. And so he does. Why? Because he's out for himself. He's only thinking about himself. Second, notice the ramifications. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, I've heard all about this. I've experienced some of it. I've heard gambling. I've heard prostitutes. I even heard a preacher one time talk about Jack Daniels. (laughs) Well, you know, Jack Daniels wasn't around. But actually, the adjective Jesus uses for reckless means waste. Really what Jesus is saying is he's wasting it. Now, it's important to recognize where he wastes it. In a far country. Meaning what? Gentiles. There was a law of Israel that said if a Jewish person lost his property to Gentiles, he was to be cut off. It was a capital offense. I mean, this guy's a felon on two counts. (laughs) Maybe three if you count the sale. According to the law, if you were a Jew and you lost your estate to Gentiles, if you were ever found, you would be seized brought into the center of the town with a large three-foot-high vase full of burnt nuts and corn. 
And then in this ceremony, the mayor of the town with all the people surrounding the felon would state his name and all of his offenses and then break the pot and all of this burnt corn and nuts would flow out, which would be symbolic of the man's life, and then the death sentence would be pronounced. You shall be cut off from all of us. And they'd drive him out of town. Now in the first century, if you had no economic system, you had no household, you couldn't live very long in the wilderness. And yet that's what they were committing him to. Now the Amish have a shunning ritual. The Amish will shun someone but still allow him to eat at a table off to himself. But in the Jewish society, it was quite different. If you were part of the Quitsatcha ceremony, that's the ceremony I just mentioned, you were cut off forever. You were driven out of town. No one could have anything to do with you. And within a matter of days or weeks, or maybe a month or two, if you were strong, you would die. It's a public act, it was your execution. Third, notice the return. Look at verses 17 and 18. But when he comes to himself, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father. Now that's the natural impulse. When the money runs out, when you, the famine hits, the natural impulse is to go back home. But this guy can't. He knows what awaits him at home. He knows the rules. He knows the charges against him. He knows that there's nothing he can do to avoid that punishment. So look what he does. He says, you know what? I'm going to get a job here. I'm going to get a job that's going to provide me with an income so I can live and also maybe provide me with assets so that I can go back and repay the debt I've lost. And so a Jewish boy goes and slops pigs unclean animals. Now think of this. If I've broken one law by saying to my dad, I wish you were dead. If I've broken another law to sell his assets quickly. If I've broken a third law, losing all of that to Gentiles, what's slopping pigs? I mean, I'm on a roll. I'm a three-time loser. But as soon as he takes that job, he knows he's made a mistake. Jesus said he would gladly eat the pods the pigs ate, meaning he doesn't have food himself. He's not making enough to live on. Not only that, he's not making enough to repay the debt. So look what Jesus says. He comes to himself. Now, this, that phrase is huge. What does that mean? Others translate it, he came to his senses. I would submit to you that this is one of the most misunderstood, mistranslated, misinterpreted phrases in the entire Bible. Most people say that means he comes to the place of repentance. 
They say there in the pig pen, he realizes the error of his ways, he regrets his actions, he's repentant, and he says, I'm going to go back and ask for my forgiveness of my father. Nothing could be further from the truth. If that were true, then this parable would make no sense at all. Remember how Jesus begins? A shepherd has a lost sheep. The shepherd goes and finds the sheep. Next, a woman loses a coin. The woman goes diligently and searches, turns her house upside down for the coin. If this son, who's away from home, who's a serious felon, can rescue himself, then the Muslims are right and this parable makes no sense. That sheep didn't find itself. That coin didn't find itself. And this son doesn't find himself either. If coming to himself means repentance, then this story stands in stark contrast to the lost sheep and the lost coin. But that's not what it means. You know, for years, that's what I thought it meant. Until I had the good pleasure of meeting Dr. Ken Bailey. For 40 years, he taught at the University of Lebanon, New Testament. He's gone to be with the Lord last year, two years ago, but what he taught in this parable is profoundly important. He was able to show me and many others this parable in its first century context. First of all, Jesus begins with a shepherd. And it brings to mind the words of David. Psalm 23, his most famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Three reasons. He takes care of my physical needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Normally, sheep eat from a standing position, but when the grass is lush and they're feeling safe, they lie down to eat. He says, the Lord's my shepherd. I have no wants. No physical wants that He doesn't meet. No emotional wants. He leads me beside still waters. Still waters means a sense of emotional peace. Peace of mind. And then thirdly, He says, and this is how we have it translated or, or understood, He restores my soul. What does that mean? You know what the Hebrew says? He leads me to repentance. He makes me repent. So Jesus begins there. And now He says, this man comes to himself. You know what that literally means in Greek? He takes thought for himself. He takes thought of himself. In other words, he's only interested in himself and he redoubles his efforts. There in the pig pen, he says, I got a plan. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against you and against uh, heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Those words are not original. Every Pharisee and every scribe would know as soon as Jesus says this, they would think of Pharaoh who said to Moses before the tenth plague, I've sinned against heaven and against your God. Do you think Pharaoh was repentant? 
Do you think he was remorseful? He was a resilient rebel, and so is this wayward son. So what does this son do? He hatches a plan. The pig pen didn't work. I'm going to go back to my dad, and I'm going to say, because after all, he's got many servants that are still able to eat. I'm going to beg for mercy. I'm going to go back. I'm going to ask him for a job until all the stigma is lifted because if I get this job, I'll be able to regain all that I've lost and I'll pay him off and I'll save my own skin. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the king who was owed two debts? One was a little debt, one was a huge debt, and the guy said, just give me more time. There was no way that guy could pay off that debt. Unlike the sheep that wanders off, unlike the coin that's carelessly lost, this guy is lost of his own will. He's lost of his own making. He takes thought for himself. He shows the full extent of his lostness. Now, if this were the end of the story, then the Muslims might have a point. He came to himself. It means he came to repentance. He does what he needs to do. He restores himself. There's no need for a cross. There's no need for a sacrifice. There's no need for anybody to bear the cost but him. If this boy can come home and work it out, then there's no reason to credit anyone but him. But that's not what Jesus says. You see, what the Muslims miss is what the Pharisees missed, and what the Pharisees missed is what many Christians miss. They miss the grace. Finally, notice the result. Look at verse 20. But while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him. Meaning what? Meaning his father was watching for him. Why was his father watching for him? Because he knew he would fail. He knew there was no way that boy could make it home and not be seen by the community. And if they get him before the father gets him, it's curtains for him. So think of this. Every day, every moment of every day, that father's out on his porch looking off in a distance, looking for his son. And when he sees him down the road, because he knows the full extent of his need, he knows the penalty that his son is going to face, he knows the price he's going to have to pay if he reaches the village, what's he do? He devises his own plan. He says to himself, if I see my son, I'm going to do something that no Middle Eastern patriarch would ever do. I'm going to hike up my robe and I'm going to run to him. I'm going to get to him before anybody sees him. And I'm going to pay the full price of my son's sin. Do you see this? Every scribe and Pharisee listening to this story would have known Jesus' next words. You know what he does? He borrows from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, while he's still a long way off. His father sees him. You see, it's not the son that sees the father, it's the father who sees the son. And then he does what no father in that time would ever do. He would take up his robe and he would run. No Middle Eastern patriarch would ever let his legs show and none would run. There are five 
demonstrable ways in which this father is unlike any other father in antiquity. Why would he run? I used to think he ran because he missed him so much. He runs because he needs to save him. Save him from the judgment. And when he finds him, what's he do? He throws his arms around him. He gives him kisses. He dresses him in his own clothing. Think of the cost of that. What this father is saying is not only did, will I pay for your past transgressions, I'll pay for the load of debt you currently owe. And not only that, he says to his servants, bring my ring and put it on his hand, meaning all of the rest of what I have is yours. And let's kill a fatted calf. And have a party. His compassion is amazing. Before any confession, before any confession, before his son gets to that plan, which is make me one of your servants, the father interrupts him. The father empties himself. He lays himself down. He lays down his own dignity. He lays down his own shame. He acts like a servant. He runs and restores his favored son. Why? Does that sound familiar to you? If you're a Christian, it ought to because that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. The boy says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he gets the proposal out, his father interrupts him and gives him grace and acceptance. What is it that restores him to the family? What causes this lost son to accept his father's acceptance? He accepts being accepted. In the face of his father's sacrifice, he realizes there's nothing he could have ever done to satisfy the dead. In face of his father's acceptance, he loses all thought of himself. Remember the complaint? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus said it's much worse than that. <laughs> In your opinion, I run down the road. I lift up my robe. I run and rescue them. I shower them with kisses. I put my robe on them. You know what else I do? I give them the entire estate that I have. I give them everything they could never have earned on their own. I give them all the freedom and no debt. You see, the Muslims are wrong. And every Christian is wrong who says that repentance comes from us. It doesn't. You can't work your own way home. You can't work up your own repentance. He's got to come to you first. That's why the old hymn writer said, lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Why? Because we don't get rescued once. Jesus rescues us every day. Now that's the gospel. According to the writer of Galatians, who got it from Jesus. Think about that. Amen.